You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Choo Choo and the Philly Flash, released August 28, 1981. It was written by Barbara Dana and Henry Barrow, directed by David Lowell Rich, and released by Melvin Simon Productions. Broadway lyricist Bob Merrill, best known for his work on musicals Carnival, Funny Girl, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, wrote the first draft of a script called Choo Choo and the Philly Flash about a Puerto Rican prostitute and a Bowery wino, which he intended to make for Columbia. Weirdly, in the original January 1974 article announcing the film, it's listed as Merrill's third screenplay after Mahogany and Freaky Friday, though none of the three films credits him in any way. A year later, Raquel Welch's Raquel Welch Productions and Columbia Pictures signed on to the project as a joint venture with Welch starring as Choo Choo and her boyfriend at the time, costume designer Ron Tulski, set to produce. Seems really dangerous to, to put your name in the production name. Right, because if the, it fails, yeah. you can't do it. It's like when sitcoms is like, well, we already used my first name for a show, so now we're going to use my last name. Yeah. And we'll use my full name. Columbia got cold feet about trusting the film to an untested producer and dumped the project. The attached production companies also scattered. Jay Weston was then slotted into the producer position, but generously kept Tolsky on as the film's credited costume designer, because that was what he actually did for a living, and he almost produced the film, but he was like, hey, you're, you're a costume designer, you can work on this movie still. <laughs> yeah, just do what you actually yeah, do. <laughs> just stick to clothes, buddy. Weston happened to bump into Alan Arkin one day, who agreed to attach himself if his wife, Barbara Dana, a children's book author by trade, was brought on for a page one rewrite of the script. Do you guys recall the last time we covered an Alan Arkin movie written by a member of his immediate family? Was it the, um, the divorce one? Yeah. What is the name of that movie? Hold on, hold on. Improper Channels. Improper Channels was written by his son, Adam Arkin. They spent seven years in development, and it doesn't show. The final product includes roles for the entire family, Arkin, Dana, and Arkin's three sons, Adam, Matthew, and Tony. Arkin called it the best script he'd read in years, but his wife wrote it. I would say that too, even if it was only in my top ten. Oh, that's sweet. Don't do that. Don't do that? No. Okay. I don't want I don't want I don't want you to tell me my garbage. Top ten's is, pretty is good. good. If I'm, it's in the top ten scripts I've ever read. I'm just saying if it's actually garbage and you're telling me it's good, that that can I'm result you, in movies like this being made. <laughs> that's fine. As long as we get paid. Where where do my scripts come in? <laughs> well, hold on now. <laughs> we're not married yet, Richard. After Columbia dropped it, the film landed with Fox, just as the actor strike was starting. Fox announced they would not finance the project, which opened the door for independent producers to take over, and Melvin Simon stepped in to rescue the project. As an independent producer, Simon qualified for an exemption to the SAG strike. Welch exited the project, so Simon brought on Carol Burnett to star opposite Arkin as Choo Choo, and Arkin recommended director David Lowell Rich, who he had recently worked with on TV movie The Defecation... No, not The Defecation... <laughs> <laughs> the Defection of Simus Kuderka. The film shot entirely in San Francisco on a budget of $7 million and managed to make back a hundred. What? Thousand dollars. Oh, you got me. <laughs> which, of course, landed them in the Rolling Stones' fabled Big Bucks, Big Losers article for the year. We start in the clouds, and as they clear, the camera floats over the bay toward the city of San Francisco. We get inserts of the Golden Gate, outdoor markets, water features, all the various monuments of the city. I always go into a movie as it's a bad sign when the opening credits look like a television show credits. Right. It looks yes. like a House Hunters episode. Oh, yeah. San Francisco. Great. No, Got but it. just like the, the, the font. Oh, the, the Family Matters font. Yeah, the Family Matters <laughs> font in that bright color, obviously done like on a machine, not yeah. like actually filmed credits. I think the last time we I got a real bad taste of that was... Uh, on the right track, mm. where oh. it just felt like a TV show on the way in. It reminded me of um, Serial. Oh, okay. Much further back. But again, San Francisco. 
Lastly, we see a group of maybe 50 members of the city's homeless population all squeezed into the same city block. An alarm goes off and wakes two homeless men on a bench in a bus station. One of the men is Flash, played by Alan Arkin, and the alarm sound is actually coming from the clock in his own pocket. He pulls it out, hits snooze, and winds it back up. The alarm was evidently to remind him that bundles of local newspapers have been dropped off and it's time for him to collect them and bring them into the station. Flash is visited by another homeless man, Charlie, played by his actual son, Adam Arkin, who, as we just mentioned, wrote Improper Channels. It sounds like Charlie was recently admitted to a mental hospital and released. Flash asks if he's cured because being crazy won't do him any favors and Charlie thinks so. Flash delivers the papers to a newspaper stand and then we cut to him wiping down somebody's windshield. He shares with Charlie that he's three weeks sober and his hands have stopped shaking. He's been offered a job through the mail and not drinking is a requirement. How, how did this person find him and how does he receive mail? Well, it's a friend that found him for the job. And I don't know how he receives mail, but I imagine this person went to some effort to reach him because mm. they're acquainted. I this, this is going to get into something much darker. Uh, and I guess I'll just do it now. Is this real or is this imagined that is he does he is he really an athlete? I think he is. OK, because they, they, they do play it as like maybe he's just crazy. And yeah. he thinks that he was. But I, I think we, we see something later that confirms that he is. What kind of a job is it? Being an umpire for softball league in Flint, Michigan. Softball's okay. I can make that switch. Charlie notices that Flash seems to be using his own soap mix to clean the windows instead of buying the patented formula from The Commander, and Charlie thinks he's going to get in trouble for it. Flash says he's 25 bucks short of bus fare to Michigan, and once he closes the gap, he's out of here. I would have had it by now, too, but I got robbed twice and I had debts. Charlie tries to warn Flash when he sees The Commander approaching on a bike with loudspeakers. The commander is being played by Jack Warden, another local homeless man, but who seems to lead a loyal contingent of homeless men. I guess he lives on a boat, so he's not homeless. Yeah. But he's still very dirty. And he has an <laughs> army of homeless people. Were those loudspeakers? I thought it was like some kind of motorized contraption of a bike. Oh, I'm not that, sure. That was like making like some kind of uh, steam-powered noises. Oh, I don't know about that. It, it reminded me of the bike that Angela Lansbury rides in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. <laughs> oh, okay. If, if anyone knows that reference. Yeah. He prepares to sell his official soap to some interested homeless customers for $2 a bottle. Two of the men are played by Danny Glover and Vincent Schiavelli. The commander notices Flash washing windows with his own formula, and he's offended by it. As revenge, he gives cheese sandwiches to all the other homeless folks except for Flash. Across town, we see Carol Burnett as Choo Choo, a.k.a. Emily, helping her neighbor Vittorio roll his hot dog cart down some steps to the sidewalk. Her landlord hears the clattering and demands her overdue rent, but she ducks back inside without really responding to the request. Do you guys remember the last time we heard a landlord complaining about overdue rent? Hmm. Very recent. Patreon pick. I, I don't. Jaws 2? I hate to bother a famous Nazi hunter about something uh, as... Oh, okay. Boys from Brazil? as the rent. No, not Boys from Brazil. Different famous Nazi hunter movie. Different famous Nazi no, yeah, hunter? Yeah, Boys from Brazil. Okay. Whoa. I was like, I've really <laughs> forgotten something here, man. <laughs> the landlord follows her inside to her apartment, but she pretends to be on the phone beside her door so she won't have to talk to him. I think she's pretending like she's got a job coming in right. where she might be getting some money in order to try to like ease him up a bit. Yeah, she books an invisible customer for like 52 weeks worth of lessons. Right. Then she moves inside and he pounds on her door as she does stretches and tries to ignore him. We cut back out to the street where Flash is wiping down a car against the driver's will. When the man steps out of the car to pick a fight, Charlie picks up a pipe to defend his friend and Flash tries to wrestle it away from him. All three men wind up rolling around in the street as the car's passenger screams for help and the other homeless guys laugh at the scene. The driver finally manages to pull his way back into the car and drive away as Flash screams at Charlie for the unnecessary intervention. Jesus Christ! They let you out of the streets? What's the matter with them doctors? Back at Choo Choo's apartment, she instructs a student for tap dancing lessons. The lesson ends, and Choo Choo changes into a Carmen Miranda-style outfit to go out performing on street corners. We cut to a burger joint where the commander and his loyal goons discuss their upcoming business ventures. Flash listens idly from outside the circle. He has watches that he claims he can sell for 60 bucks, but he's willing to unload for six. He tries to force some on Charlie, who is hesitant to commit. But Flash is more than willing to buy six on the sidelines. Or eight, I guess he says. I think it was more than even he was trying to foist right. on Charlie. 
The commander reminds him that he said he didn't need anybody. You know who you're talking to here? Yeah, I know who I'm talking to here. A wino, a boot shit on it. I'm the Philly Flash, that's who I am. No, Philly Flash, my sister's ass. You ain't nothing and you never was nothing. Flash says that if he were a faster runner, he'd be in the Major League Hall of Fame, and the commander is just a dishonorably discharged Navy man stealing valor with a fake title. The commander's heard enough and throws Flash out on the street, but then Flash peeks back inside to get the final word. Just for that, I'm leaving. And I'm never coming back. Promise. We cut back to Choo Choo performing on a street corner near a sign that reads, Choo Choo, the one-person Latin band. There's a tree draped with instruments that all seem to be animatronic. Ukuleles all play themselves, maracas shake on their own, and a drum beats itself, all without Choo Choo's input. At first, the only instrument she plays is a cowbell hanging in front of her crotch, which she rings by thrusting her pelvis violently to the beat of the song. She plucks a ukulele from the uke tree and begins to sing. The passing public are adept at ignoring her. Back outside the burger joint, Flash pops out to surprise Charlie and they scare each other. He begs Charlie to give him watches to sell because he can't find work. He takes three watches and promises to pay Charlie a cut of whatever he makes at 6 o'clock at Mr. Juice, which we'll learn later is a Juice street vendor. Flash's efforts to sell watches lead him to the same crosswalk where Choo Choo has set up shop and they are quickly clashing. Hey, beat it, huh? Beat it, you're distracting my audience. What do I, I don't see no audience. my watch? I certainly do not. Now, will you beat it? Suddenly, we get a new plot. Harry, a heavyset balding guy carrying a briefcase, is running through an office building being chased by two more guys. One of the chasers is a very angry Danny Aiello. Briefcase dude Harry pops into an office off the hall and locks the door behind him. He opens a window and we can hear Choo Choo and the Philly Flash's voices below him. He drops the briefcase out the window and we see it hit the ground right beside Choo Choo's instruments. Well, that, that's, that's a little inaccurate because I think he was trying to hide it on the ledge that's what he says later but what? he's literally just holding it out and then let's go of it no it's on the ledge for a moment and then it tips over i think is but, it but i don't know how it's literally in front of a bank of windows and i'm yeah. like how are you hiding anything out right? a window that is transparent yeah. it looks like his plan was to throw it out the window and then collect it from the bottom so that no one could steal it from him between here and there but he literally just drops it out the window i i didn't get the impression that he's leaning yeah. it against anything Harry sneaks out of the building above them through an adjoining door and manages to make his way out of the building, suggesting that he never should have dropped the briefcase in the first place. I feel like it would have made more sense if he thought he could climb out the window and then dropped it by mistake. But then he noticed another door and he was like, oh, I'll go that way. Yeah, and, and Emily as Choo Choo has a convenient briefcase-sized slot in the side of her, in her drum. drums. Yeah. yeah, which is still somehow a functional drum, whether or not there's something inside of it. Choo Choo tucks it into an empty compartment in her drum that is suspiciously perfectly sized for. <laughs> and I assumed at first that she was the intended recipient of this drop posing as a street performer, like it's that perfectly sized. Harry makes it out of the building and rushes out to ask where his briefcase went, and Choo Choo and Flash play dumb. The man can't wait around looking for it, but offers Flash 20 bucks to find it and then bring it to his hotel this afternoon. For some reason, Flash expects Choo Choo to hand it over for free, and she screams for the police to scare him into leaving her alone. Come on, come on, come on, hand it over now. Don't give me any trouble, lady. I gotta take the case to the man. Please! Please! Murder! You lay one hand on me and I'll have you put away for the rest of your life. Flash follows her the whole way home, begging for the briefcase, even offering to split the fee. When she closes her apartment door in his face, he threatens to call the man from the phone beside the door and tell him exactly where his briefcase went. I got my hand on the phone, lady. Got a hands on the dime. It's gone in. In reality, he's holding neither the phone nor the dime. She invites him in, and together they search through the briefcase, finding nothing of obvious value. They decide he wants the case for sentimental reasons and make plans to return it to Harry. Flash has to borrow a dime from Choo Choo to make the call. What happened to that dime you were bragging about out there in the hall? They swiped it for me. Who? The phone company. You know what they like. You put a dime in a slot, that's the last you see of it. When they get a hold of Harry, Flash tries to sweet-talk him into a better deal. Choo Choo takes over the call and negotiates for travel costs on top of the $20. They head to the hotel, and outside Harry's door, Choo Choo decides to take the briefcase around a corner so they can maintain some leverage for the $20. This seemed more just 
plot convenience to me that the the briefcase couldn't just be out in plain sight because they would have seen it yeah yeah maybe that too she hides around a corner but just before flash can knock on the door harry is chased through it by aiello and friend who catch him and drag him back into the room they don't catch flash they just catch harry i'm not gonna kill you i'm gonna hang out the window by your fingernails and watch him pull off one by one Flash runs away from the door and tells Choo Choo it's a bad time as he races past her. I kind of think it would have been funny if instead he had just reeled up to knock again anyway. Yeah. And she had to tackle him away from the door like, what are you doing? Didn't you hear what they were just talking about? Outside he tells her that this got very violent and if she wants to sell the briefcase she can do it on her own. Weirdly she flips on him complaining that it's too dangerous for her to do alone and he needs to get her out of all the trouble he's gotten her into. In real life... Their problems would have ended here with him tearing the briefcase away and throwing it off a bridge. But this is a movie and they're typically longer than 25 minutes. On a trolley later, they try to figure out what about this briefcase could be such a big deal. They talk through everything that's happened, like everything, in closer detail than I just did. Ultimately, they decide that it has a secret compartment, although Flash amusingly calls it a secret passageway. <laughs> he's talking about yeah. where they can or find sections. Stuff. Yeah, he's like, maybe he's got sections. What do you mean sections? I don't know, secret passageways. They find a manila envelope hidden in a back pocket, and the cover reads, United States Government Research Grant, Confidential, Pacific Western University, Distillation Process. And, and it's really not a secret compartment. It's, like, got buttons and everything like that. Right. It's, it, it's it wasn't very, invisible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would expect it to be something where you have to, like, bang on it for something to pop open. Right, right. But it's it's really just a pocket they didn't notice. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't have, like, the 50 gold farthings from, uh, freaking, from Russia with Love, yeah. like, hidden in the in the in the lining <laughs> gold sovereigns that's what they were called not farthings i'm sorry i don't know why i got the word farthing in there <laughs> sovereigns before someone comes after me choo choo is intimidated by the official nature of the document and quickly snatches it to hide it back in its envelope secret plans shut up shut up government stuff confidential you keep it down this is a public vehicle wow we're sitting on a gold mine flash is officially freaking out and makes plans to bump the price up negligibly whoa we play our cards right, we could get 50 bucks for that. Maybe 75. Back in Harry's hotel room, he claims to Aiello that he didn't intentionally drop the briefcase because it fell by accident, but he clearly dropped it on purpose. I don't think he did. I don't think it's clear. Well, he swears on his mother's grave, so I hope you guys are right. It sounds like these mobster-type fellows hired Harry to steal the paperwork, but he had second thoughts and tried to return it himself before he lost it. When Harry swears on the Pope's life, Aiello seems to think he's lying too. I swear on the Pope's life, I'm not cut up for this. Don't swear anymore, okay? Like he's worried about the Pope. He's like, hold on. <laughs> Aiello informs him that if Choo Choo and the Flash don't show up soon, they're going to start cutting off parts of him. Back at Choo Choo's apartment building, she's suggesting a new sales price of $500 when they notice her neighbor Vittorio with the hot dog stand. They help him drag it up the steps and then a flight of stairs inside. Choo Choo asks for a dime so she can call Harry back and announce the new price, but Flash thinks 500 is way too much. He then describes a bizarre bargaining strategy where you start with a low price and then work your way up, which makes no sense at all. Right. It's like 200. All right, deal. 300. What? He recommends 75, but is quick to accept 250. When Choo Choo calls the hotel room, Aiello answers, and when she doesn't believe he's Harry, as he claims to be, she makes him describe the contents of the briefcase. He hands the phone to Harry to answer her questions. Without consulting Flash, she increases the asking price to 300 on the phone, but Harry is quick to accept. The plan is now that she will call back with a location for them to meet up later. I don't know why she bothered to call before she decided on a meeting place. I guess we needed more scenes. Aiello is as annoyed as I am to learn the movie will needlessly pause here for a bit. Harry suggests a game of 20 questions to pass the time. Do you guys recall the last time someone recommended a party game to pass the time and was coldly rebuffed? It was charades, if that helps. Yeah, I was just Oh, thinking. Jaws 2. Jaws 2 is correct. Anybody want to play charades? No. In Choo Choo's kitchen, she offers Flash saltines, and he excitedly accepts them. Vittorio knocks on the door and offers them the last couple hot dogs for the day, which gives Choo Choo the idea of using him for the drop. I don't know if I want the last two hot dogs. I've been soaking in hot dog <laughs> yeah, water all day. they could have been there all day, They're yeah. extra juicy. No, thanks. No, thanks, Vittorio. In Vittorio's apartment, Choo Choo explains the new plan. She shows him the package, which is the briefcase wrapped in butcher paper. She tells him that a man will approach the cart with a password, and he will sell the man this package. While they discuss the plan, 
Flash is eating all the toppings out of Vittorio's hot dog cart. After the exchange, they will meet at the wharf. This part of the plan takes Choo Choo four minutes and 600 words to say. I don't understand. She's like, we're going to hide behind a bush, and then we'll move out from behind that bush, and you will sell the thing, and then you will go to a place, and then you'll go to here, and then you will go to there, and we will meet you there, and then we will all be at that place, and we will be there at the same time. Yeah, and and the password is ordering food. Yeah, but a really like, complicated order. And it's really not that complicated. But it's complicated enough that Vittorio can't yeah, keep track of it. Just just say the password is the crow flies at midnight. Something that's not going to be said to a hot dog vendor on a regular basis. Right. I'll have some crow flies. Do you remember the last time that we had a password that was misinterpreted uh, as something that somebody was saying anyways? Under the Rainbow? Yeah. Our last Adam Arkin film, too. Because oh. he was the interim manager of the that's hotel. True. It's a recurring joke in the movie that Choo Choo will talk plans out in ridiculous detail, but the joke is always, can you believe you have to hear all this? Which is my least favorite kind of joke. Flash explains that this deal is important because it's worth $300 to them, and Choo Choo rushes him out the door because she was going to have Vittorio do this for free, apparently. Choo Choo tries to convince Vittorio that Flash meant 300 cookies, which in 2022 is negligibly different from $300. (laughs) You don't go around telling people about money, they'll run off with it. Where have you been? You said it was cookies. He saw through that. I don't think so. Anyway, he's your friend. You trust him or not you? This has nothing to do with trust. People smell money, they get greedy. I don't quite understand the plan. Like, the guy, the, the hot dog vendor is going to receive money. Right. Yeah. I he's suppo- going to receive $300. Yeah. So I suppose, briefcase. unless it's like wrapped up, he's going to know that he received $300. Right. And, and a stranger is not going to pay him $300 for this briefcase. Because that doesn't make sense. And nobody and, else is looking for it right now. And to me, she's really insensitive because the whole reason that they're using Vittorio is in case they try to kill us. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, let's have them kill my neighbor. Yeah. But she's also just ripping him off by trying to make all this money and not letting him be a part of it. We cut back to Harry's room, and they're actually playing 20 questions. Yeah, is, that, got a, that got a chuckle. That, they're, that they went ahead with yeah. it? Yeah. Is it a living American TV personality? Yes. <laughs> is it a man? No. I like to think the clue he was fishing for is Carol Burnett, because she <laughs> interrupts the guessing with another phone call. But <laughs> all the clues that he gives match for her. Choo Choo tells Harry that he is to find a hot dog man in the park and make a very specific, complicated order to ensure that he is the man that they're looking for. Unfortunately, Harry doesn't have a pencil, so he can't take down the order as she relays it to him. The two goons in the room scour the drawers for something to write with and come up empty-handed. Choo Choo hangs up the phone before Harry has written anything down. But amazingly, they get the entire order, I think. Yeah. Or most of it. Aiello is fed up with this mess and says that they're going to return to where they lost the case to look for more witnesses. At the same business park, we see a man with several wagons hitched together containing cats in cages. Aiello and company ask the cat man if he's seen a man wearing a baseball cap, but he's too distracted by the cat hunt. I'm busy. I got a cat coming in. I'm trying to increase my inventory. (coughs) Want to buy a cat? No. You know him? He was here this morning selling watches. Nah, I don't know him. When Aiello offers him some cash for the information, the cat man coughs up the commander's name in connection with counterfeit watch sales. I like, though, that after he gives him the money, he still tries to give him the cat. He's like, oh, don't forget your cats that you just bought. It's like, no, we were bribing you. Like, no, I got a business. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I don't take handouts. And he's like, do you take bribes? He's like, yeah. He's like, then we're good here. That's what just (laughs) happened. They find the commander's boat in China Basin. For this whole scene, the commander's face is half-coated in shaving cream, but he doesn't appear to be actively shaving, and nobody notices it or mentions it. The commander pretends not to know who they're asking about when they describe Flash, but he offers to put Watchmen on the case for 50 bucks, and Aiello is quick to accept the offer. Too quick. The commander can see he screwed up. Because the commander refused to let them on board his vessel, they have to extend a pan on the end of a long stick to collect their cash. After Aiello and friend leave, The commander sends out three of his henchmen to tail Flash. Not capture, just tail. Keep track of where he is for no fucking reason. Back in Vittorio's apartment, Flash struggles to communicate the special order that Vittorio is waiting for to present their prized package. But this guy operates a hot dog cart all day. He should be really good at taking orders for hot dog related items. Maybe that's why they stuck with the hot dog plan. Yeah. After practice, Vittorio understands the password. Choo Choo tells Flash that he can stay on her couch because she's worried about being here alone tonight. 
She asks if he understands how a couch is different from a bed. Yeah, I get your meaning. If you think I was going to fool around, you got the wrong guy. Well, thank God for small favors. Do you guys recall the last time we heard a character say, thank God for small favors? No. It was Brenda Vaccaro, and the small favors were her boobs. <laughs> Zora the Gay Blade? Zora the Gay Blade. When he tries to stab her through right. Zoro's dad's <laughs> coffin. Okay, sure. She's like, thank God for small favors. Florine, did you know her? Thank God for small favors! It suddenly occurs to Flash that he never met up with Charlie at Mr. Juice to pay him for his share of the watch money. He leaves now, and Choo Choo follows him, but they get to Mr. Juice four hours later than they agreed. Luckily, Charlie's still there waiting, but unluckily, Flash hasn't sold any of the watches. He gives Charlie all the watches back. Yeah, take them back. I didn't sell nothing. Yeah, me neither. I think everybody already has a watch. Hey, everybody's here tonight! Flash notices the commander's three henchmen following him, but he doesn't recognize it as a tail. They're just people he knows, so he waves at them to say hi. Flash invites Charlie back to Choo Choo's building to stay the night, but promises he won't come inside the apartment. Back in Harry's hotel room, the non-Aiello gangster guy is still guessing names for the 20 questions game. It's definitely been more than 20 questions by now, but maybe this is a different game than the one we saw before. Harry says he has two questions left. Aiello wakes with a startle and answers a phone that wasn't ringing. Hello? Hello? The other guys look at him like he's crazy. Back outside Choo Choo's place, we see the commander's henchmen scaling the outside of her building. True to the agreement, Charlie has been forced to sleep outside on, like, a balcony area, or I can't tell if it's just the porch of the building, but he's, like, sleeping on the ground yeah. outside of her building. In the middle of the night, Flash wanders into the kitchen and finds Choo Choo reading a variety magazine. She shares with him her real name, Emily, and asks his, but he just reiterates his nickname over and over. See, Flash comes from baseball. The Philly Flash is what they call me. Flash is because I'm fast, like a Flash, and the Philly part is because I was with the Phillies. Well, what's your name? Oh, I don't use it. I guess he suffered some kind of injury because earlier he said his feet kept him out of the Hall of Fame, so Flash seems like a cruel nickname for a guy who's not fast. The henchmen send one of their own, Clem, to report to the commander that Flash is here with Choo Choo. Back in the kitchen, Choo Choo shares what should have been an interesting story about how her career started, but Flash doesn't care about any of it, and neither do I. Some guy named Spuds Durgan taught her the art of one-man banding. They got on shows that we've never heard of, and this is all wasted time. The story literally ends with Spud saying, never mind, this doesn't work. He doesn't die, they didn't lose a contest. This Spuds guy just said, never mind, and never answered why. Great story. I kept waiting for a punchline here, but there isn't one. Flash tells her to stop drinking because it nearly killed him. He digs a baseball out of his pocket with the signatures of the whole Phillies team. We learn here that he stopped playing baseball just because. It was just a hard game to play, so he drank instead, and now he wants to coach softball for one of the guys who signed the ball. The film has completely switched gears to being a dramatic character piece, and I like this stuff even less than I liked the slapstick stuff. <laughs> Clem gets to the commander and says, flashes at choo-choos and the commander doesn't care and sends him back he's like oh great bye back at choo-choos the apartment is all dark except for a spotlight on choo-choos face as she sings victor young's moonlight serenade for flash though the night is dark and dreams it seems i see the august moon it's specifically a cover of felicia sanders 1959 version of the song Carmen for the money, but my heart is with Felicia. I got one for you. Flash responds with a song of his own called The Enchilada Man. Enchilada, so nice and hot. Enchilada, I got, I got. The song comes from a duet between Dean Martin and Carmen Miranda in 1953's Scared Stiff. Enchilada, so nice and hot. Enchiladas, I got, I got. I had to take my headphones off. Because it's such a grating singing yeah, voice. Yeah, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, if you thought that was grating, wait till you hear Jerry Lewis in the original version. Enchiladas, so nice and hot. Enchiladas, I got, I got. Because Charlie has been left outside, he is able to eavesdrop on Clem's very important message when he returns to his friends with the commander's orders. When Clem finally catches his breath, he says, the commander says, keep, keep going, guys. Yep, 
just do what you've been doing. And then when Vincent Schiavelli says, why? Clem's like, oh, I got I to gotta go ask him now. And he turns around and leaves. Why did you specifically have a character sleeping outside where he could overhear the bad guys say stuff and then have them say nothing? It feels like this movie was maybe 40 minutes long and they were like, we need to stall. Stuff extra pages in here. Just write random stuff. It doesn't have to connect to anything. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Now Choo Choo and Flash are dancing in her room because why not? We got all the time in the world to get back to the actual plot of the film. What are people going to do? Walk out of the theater? They already bought their ticket. Who cares? Flash notices it's late and he thanks her for the couch. We literally waste another scene of Clem getting to the commander with no news. What about Flash? Uh, nothing. Nothing? Well, what'd you come back here for? I'll forget. And then he turns around again. What are we doing? Why did Aiello pay the commander 50 bucks to follow Flash around if they know where the fucking guy is all night and they don't report it? Is this an honor among homeless people thing? Because if it was, why tail him at all? Just take the money and make more window cleaner or whatever the fuck. The next morning, Charlie starts shouting for Flash from outside because the commander is here to talk. He won't say what he wants to talk about for an interminable amount of time. This movie is so fucking annoying. I feel guilty wasting your time with a whole clip, so I'm just going to recite the entire scene to you oh. to accentuate how fucking nothing it is. Flash. Hey, Flash. What? Flash. Flash. Hey, Flash. Wait a minute. What? Commander's here. He wants to talk to you. Hiya, Flash. What do you want? I was in the neighborhood. I thought we'd chew the fat. About what? This and that. Why are you so friendly all of a sudden? Aren't you going to invite me up? Ain't my place. Huh. So what do we do? I'm willing to bend. Flash's alarm starts going off in his pocket again. I'll be right down. He goes to Choo Choo's door. You up? Yeah, I'm up. If you want me, I'll be on the street. What for? Gotta talk to somebody. I'll be right back. What's that noise? Huh? Oh, it's me. He goes outside. What do you want? I just wanted to see how you're doing. You want a nutty bar? No. I bet you Charlie does. How'd you know I was here? I seen Charlie. You two guys are always together. Oh, yeah? So what's new? Nothing. Just fucking start talking, you assholes. You have said nothing. It's been five straight minutes of you guys just going, hi, 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 hi. And then for no reason, he lets Choo Choo know what he's doing. He could This entire conversation could have just been like, Flash, come down here. That the, the, All the yep. words I just said should have been the commander shouting, Flash, come down here. When Flash tells him to leave, the commander says he's hurt because he was just considering inviting Flash to his birthday. The commander eventually gets around to saying, split the ransom with me or I'll tell them where you are, even though you won't be there anymore because you're literally leaving right now. The commander tells his underlings to continue following Flash to make sure that absolutely nothing has changed in the last 24 hours of the story. Choo Choo is annoyed that Charlie is still following them around, but I'm sure this character will be of some significance to the story eventually, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Arkin mm -hmm. wouldn't just say, put my son in this movie and have him follow me through every scene with no conceivable explanation, right? When they get to the park where the exchange is to take place, there seems to be a crowded family fun day going on, complete with multiple hot dog stands. They pick a bush to hide in, but Charlie says it won't work. I can't do that. Why not? My hair will show. It's too big. Okay, fuck off then. Why are you even here? Predictably, Harry goes around ordering the special combo from each of the wrong vendors first. It's not funny because it's just not funny. Charlie is finally invited to help, but apparently they tell him to go grab the fat bald guy for some reason, which was not the plan. This guy is supposed to go to a hot dog stand and pay $300 for a briefcase. That's still the plan right now. So, of course, Charlie goes and grabs the wrong guy as Harry continues moving from cart to cart, arms overloaded with hot dogs he didn't want, but for some reason paid for. Did he pay for $300 at every hot dog stand? Well, I think he paid paid for hot dogs at every why did he pay anything less than three hundred dollars if the plan was you give me three hundred dollars i give you a briefcase well because he got food instead of a briefcase so he's paying specifically just for that food why if he didn't want that food is he buying hot dogs he ordered the food but you can also say never mind you're not who i thought you well, were he does like the next one right but his by then his arms are literally just overloaded with hot dogs that he's also not throwing hilarious. away hilarious i don't understand how you don't get it they, they were just very good hot dog salesmen i guess yeah <laughs> I was like look i i wasn't gonna buy a hot dog but now you've convinced i me. like to think that he specifically paid three hundred dollars he's like no, no no i have to pay you three hundred dollars and the guy's like okay here's your six hot dogs that you ordered six hot dogs yeah, or something like that. I think that those are pretty expensive hot dogs. That's true, but $300 is worth it. 
A child walks up to Vittorio and orders the absurd exact order to get the briefcase, and he prepares to hand over the package when Flash runs screaming from the bushes to interrupt, even though there's no way this kid was going to pay $300 and accept a briefcase in place of hot dogs. Flash loops around the cart screaming, and then back behind the bush because he doesn't want to make a scene. <laughs> Vittorio understands and halts the transaction. Aiello is tired of this wrong hot dog cart joke and starts shouting at random vendors. Look, you got it or not? Got what or not? The stuff! I got lots of stuff. Hey, let's cut the frills. You know why we're here, we know why you're here, right? Right. You got what we want, we got what you want, right? Right. All right so let's get down to it. Okay, so what do you want? Somehow, after four carts already, Aiello still can't comprehend that some of these men are not the one he was sent here to deal with. <laughs> Give him the goddamn briefcase! He tackles an innocent man to the ground for no reason. Out of nowhere, Flash says he needs Charlie again, so he grabs a random child and says, bring back the dumb guy with glasses. And, of course, this is where the girl goes and gets another random person with glasses and brings right. it back. But no, nothing actually happens with this. She doesn't bring Charlie back. We never see this girl again. That's the end of that moment. Choo Choo notices smoke, and then they realize that the briefcase is probably burning in there. Instead of taking it out, they roll it away, even after they're spotted by the goons. The commander's people are still here watching the scene, but they are rendered officially useless to the entire film because the bad guys found Choo Choo and Flash before the commander reported any information to them. So now, this whole commander subplot was completely unnecessary. Those characters have done nothing. Flash falls into the cart, and Choo Choo accidentally shoves it down a steep hill. Charlie attacks the guys chasing them, but it's irrelevant because they couldn't possibly have kept up with the rolling cart. And right now, the plan is still to sell this briefcase to right. these guys. Just do that here. Why are you so concerned? Just take the briefcase out of the flaming cart and say, hey guys, here's the briefcase that we're trying to sell you. Why even be secretive about it anymore? You, you forgot to mention the whole subplot where Charlie was talking to the devil. Oh yeah. the girl. <laughs> it, it's the henchman, one of, one of the commander's henchmen doing a puppet show, right? I don't know. Is, it, is that who it is? I think it's the girl puppet. Okay. I, the girl is doing the, the devil puppet to distract him for yeah. some reason. And he just talks to a devil puppet for like three minutes. The cart hits a ramp and flies through the air, crashing down hard in a bush. Choo Choo wanders up just as Flash is climbing out of the wreckage with the briefcase, and Vittorio cries over the destroyed hot dog cart. Flash is so embarrassed by how badly he flubbed this handoff that they decide not to sell the papers to these guys and to sell them back to the government instead. A dog from the park is now following them around, by the way. It's irrelevant, but a detail I guess I should mention. The dog does nothing. I kept thinking the dog was going to snatch the briefcase. Something. Something, right? You trained a dog to be on set, and it does nothing that an untrained dog wouldn't do. Flash Collect calls the Pentagon, and he screams into the phone for like three minutes when they won't take his call. They could easily have written some jokes here, but Arkin is left to improvise and puts all of his energy into being funny mad, which at this point I'm just tired of. Yeah, like, this could have been a really fun burn after reading type moment. Yeah. Where it's like... like they're, they're ready to make the drop. And you see like, the other half of the conversation maybe a little yeah. bit. Yeah. But instead it's just him screaming into a phone for a while. Now that that plan has officially failed, we have jumped back to the first 10 minutes of the movie. Choo Choo and Flash have a briefcase. They want money and there are still no stakes for anyone. Nothing matters. If they set this briefcase down and walked away from it, it wouldn't ruin anybody's day. It wouldn't affect any character in the whole film. We're now one hour and 14 minutes into the film when the first legitimately funny joke occurs. Flash is so offended that the Pentagon wouldn't take his collect call that he decides his new plan is to sell the government secrets they found to whoever will speak to them from the Russian consulate. All right! What? Okay! What? My country deserts me! I desert him back! Moments after walking in, the man at the front desk tosses Flash and the briefcase out onto the street. Flash decides to quit sobriety and takes Choo Choo's purse for a swig of her liquor. They wrestle over it on the floor for a while as she shatters the bottle across the sidewalk to save him from himself. New plan, sell the briefcase to the commander. Back on the commander's boat, his men are hanging a banner for his birthday celebration. He wasn't lying about that part. They sell the case to the commander for the money Choo Choo still owes on her rent, but before they can hand over the papers, Aiello and the boys show up. They collide with the female henchman, and they knock a birthday cake with lit candles to the deck of the ship, which is, like, drenched in gasoline for some reason. Yeah, they're, they're, they're brewing some kind of 
fluid. Right. That's the best way I can describe it. And the commander it's keeps... A window cleaner? Yeah, it's, that's it, what I'm wondering. It's a window cleaner or it's some kind of alcoholic beverage. Yeah, but he keeps yelling at them about having lit cigarettes. It's like the fight club. Right. When the guy's getting berated, he's like, hey, do you want how much ether we have in here? <laughs> yeah. But so the whole boat is very quickly just in flames. Uh, well, I wanted to go back real quick because um, my, my holy shit moment was when Danny Aiello has captured all of the commander's goons and they throw Ruth Buzzy out of the car while it's moving. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and she does like a little roll and then yeah. lands on her feet like the end of a, an Olympic yeah, gymnastics. Yeah, but sport. I was just, it, it was so sudden where they just literally just throw her out of a car. Yeah. I was like, uh, it took me by complete surprise. Yeah. But then somehow she gets back before them. Yeah. Carol Burnett screams a lot and everybody runs around for a while. Flash hands the papers off to Harry on their way off the boat, and later Choo Choo and Flash split their cash prize on the trolley. Flash sheepishly offers Choo Choo his baseball as a memento of their adventure together, implying that these past couple days have meant more to him than his entire failed baseball career. She says no thanks. He hops off at the bus terminal for a trip to the softball coaching job. Back at home, Choo Choo offers Vittorio 20 bucks to repair his cart's broken wheel, apparently the only damage it incurred when it, like, crashed down into a bush. Choo Choo's student, Betty, from the start of the film shows up again. At the last second, Flash decides against buying the bus ticket and sits down on a bench with Charlie. Betty is here, too, crying into a Kleenex. Charlie says getting off the bus was a mistake. Boy, that lady's gonna be very mad at you. What lady? The lady on the bus. My lady on the bus. Obviously, the only point of this Betty character being here is that she was the one who was supposed to tell him, I just brought Choo Choo here because she said she needed to get on a bus. Yeah. But because they decided they have to stamp Adam Arkin into every scene of this movie, he's for some reason sitting between them and her character is here pointlessly. There's no reason for her to be here now. There's no reason for her character to exist other than that she is Alan Arkin's wife who wrote the film. Right. So now both of them have to be in the scene together. So it's it's basically a family photo when we have the three of them sitting across this bench. Turns out Choo Choo showed up a moment ago and bought a ticket on Flash's bus. He runs out to the terminal and barely waves the bus to a stop in time. He runs to the back and sits beside Choo Choo. Instead of recognizing that they both just tried to abandon their life's plans to be together, they argue about Flash being late to the bus, and they try to make it charming with little bits like, Don't twist my meanings! I took it from Spud's turkey, but I'm not going to take it from you. Oh, uh, well, i got to listen to this now for the next 30 years. But it's mostly just irritating to listen to these two whine to each other about everything. The camera drifts away from their bus window into the sky as the credits roll. End of film. <sighs> it's very tiring. Yeah. The plot makes no sense, and almost none of it is funny. These two characters do not have chemistry together. I mean, it, it was exhausting to watch the first time and exhausting to be recounted. Yeah. The plot is simple in that they have the thing that the people want, the MacGuffin. Right. We never find out what it's for or, or why it's so important uh, to have, but obviously Danny Isle is willing to kill for it. I mean, he says that he's going to hang a guy out a window one time. He's opening fire on the boat, on the commander's boat. He's shooting his gun yeah. at our at Arkin and, and uh, Burnett. I guess that's true. Uh, so uh, when you have a plot like that, it's there's there's so many options. I look I look at a film like Cloak and Dagger, where they have he has the thing that seemingly like this is unimportant, but it ends up being really important. They right. explain how it's important, and they explain this whole process of keeping it away you know uh and that's really well done and this like they go the complete wrong way with everything yeah because for the entire plot of the film it's always an option to drop this briefcase in a trash can and walk away from this adventure yeah they never don't have that option and because no one wants them dead see like if 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 no one even knows who they are yeah through the end of the film which is why he literally just hands the papers off to Harry because he's like, I don't fucking care. This yeah. doesn't matter anything to me in my whole life. There needed to be a stake where in that that they need, even if they got rid of it, they'd still be, people would still be after them. Or Harry should be the main character because he's the only person who has any stakes. He's the only person who's going to get in trouble yeah. if this paperwork isn't recovered, either from the government or from the men who are asking for it and threatening to cut parts of him off. But regardless, the movie's not funny. 
it feels so long and it's only 91 minutes and there was no big finale scene with the commander's boat like going down the river or something like that i thought right i thought for sure this was going to end with on fire moving down the river well yeah or or just like an escape like they they get they have to hitch a ride on the commander's boat to yeah. get to get out of the area yeah it's very an interesting choice to to introduce a vehicle as a home and yeah. to not use it as a vehicle because referencing popeye where the the guy's house yeah was their escape vessel yeah and i was like that's great that's 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 a lot of fun yeah but this movie was not fun no it's not fun uh and I did get the impression that most of these people are just going through the motions trying to get a movie made. But I, I can't even understand how they got Jack Warden to say some of these lines. Like, that he's just standing out in front of the house and it's like, just keep saying hi over and over again for like six minutes. It's like, why? Why? This scene doesn't communicate anything. And, and there's so many scenes like that that are just there for no reason. And I guess they thought that the cast was funny enough that they could sell these moments just in the performance. Yeah. But nobody's putting that much effort into it because there's no story here well it's a thumbs down for me yeah thumbs, thumbs down. down um letterbox what are we thinking uh so i have it about as high as you'd expect for uh this review i have it at 110 out of 115 for the for the year all right just below an eye for an eye but above student bodies that's wrong but student bodies was so obnoxious which one would you rather watch right now I would rather watch this than Student Bodies. Oh, my God. Student Bodies was super annoying. No, it's fun. Richard, what, where do you have it? Um, I have it at 88, which puts it below Honky Tonk Freeway, but above Harry's War. Okay. I have it in 113 out of 115, which puts it just under the Bushido Blade and just above Just a Gigolo. Yeah, you put it in the wrong spot. Just a Gigolo is definitely better than this. <laughs> no, it's not, really. The, I, I don't think the people who wrote Just a Gigolo were paying attention from I'd one still, thing to the next. I'd still rather watch the worst movie ever made and just stare at David Bowie than watch this movie. Yeah, that's true. I could always mute Just a Gigolo and pretend, like, write my <laughs> own movie on top of it. Yeah, there you go. Our director here was David Lowell Rich. As I said, he had worked on a TV movie with Arkin before this. He also directed The Concord Airport 79. He directed something called That Man Bolt which looks like a Shaft meets James Bond type character from the poster, starring Fred Williamson as Jefferson Bolt. Uh, but other than that, it's basically all TV movie credits. The writer, Barbara Dana, in addition to writing the film, she appears in it as Betty, the dance student. Two years earlier, she played a bank teller in The In-Laws with husband Alan Arkin. The other writer was Henry Barrow. He, it's just this, and it's just a story credit, even though... They did a page one rewrite of a story from someone else that sounded very similar to this story, and that guy didn't get a credit. So, sorry, Bob Merrill. I don't know why that's not a story credit, unless Henry Barrow is like your AKA for this one. The music here is separated into two versions. There's one score on the TV version, and there's another score on the theatrical version. Interesting. Not, not sure why that happened. The TV version is from Maurice Jarre, who did Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, Ghost and Witness. We've heard his work on The Black Marble, The American Success Company, The Last Flight of Noah's Ark, Resurrection, and The Lion of the Desert, and he's back later this season for Taps. The theatrical version of the score came from Pete Ruggolo. Ruggolo co-wrote the film's theme song with star Alan Arkin, who gets credit for the lyrics. So which one did we watch? I believe this is the TV version. Okay. Ruggolo is a famous arranger of music in the big band era. He produced recording sessions for Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Nat King Cole, and Peggy Lee. His work was mostly relegated to television, scoring shows like Leave It to Beaver, The Untouchables, The Fugitive, and Run for Your Life. Cinematographer Victor J. Kemper, we've seen his work so far in Night of the Juggler, Final Countdown, Xanadu, and The Four Seasons. He's back later for National Lampoon's Vacation, Cloak and Dagger, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Clue, among many others. Hey, Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger <laughs> Connection, same cinematographer. The editor here was Argyle Nelson Jr., he previously cut Night of the Juggler and Underground Aces for us this season. He's back later this season for Buddy Buddy. Alan Arkin played Flash. We reviewed his work as Yosarian in our Patreon review of Catch-22. He was also Simon and Simon last season. We've seen him this season in Improper Channels, and he's back later this season as Dr. Brand in Full Moon High with son Adam Arkin. He's in The Last Unicorn. He's Bean in Freebie and the Bean. 
He also took over the role of Inspector Clouseau for the best Pink Panther film, Inspector Clouseau. He's Freud in The 7% Solution. He's in Edward Scissorhands, The Rocketeer, Get Smart, Argo, and he won an Oscar for his appearance in Little Miss Sunshine. Carol Burnett was Choo Choo, a.k.a. Emily. We saw her earlier this season in The Four Seasons and in a minisode for Altman's Health. You probably know her from The Carol Burnett Show. She was Miss Hannigan and Annie. She's the voice of Cheryl Burnett in Toy Story 4. She's Helen Hunt's mom on Mad About You, and most recently, she has shown up to play a major character in the last few episodes of Better Call Saul. Jack Warden played the commander. We saw him in Used Cars last season and The Great Muppet Caper earlier this season. He's also a juror in 12 Angry Men, Big Ben in Problem Child, and Pops in Dirty Work, starring the late Norm MacDonald and directed by the late Bob Saget. Danny Aiello was Johnson. This is our fourth Aiello title after Defiance, Hide in Plain Sight, and Fort Apache the Bronx. He's Tony in Leon the Professional, and he's Tommy Five Tone in Hudson Hawk. Yeah. He's also, I think, Papa in the Papa Don't Preach video. Yes, he is. Yeah. Adam Arkin played Charlie. We saw him earlier this season as Henry Hudson, the temporary manager of the Culver Hotel in Under the Rainbow. He's back later this season as high school student Tony in Full Moon High, again alongside Father Alan Arkin. He was Tony Parisio, one of the people on MacGyver's stress hike in MacGyver episode The Invisible Killer. I think that's one of the ones that Dana Elkar directed because the ones he directed were always super dark okay wait is it that's that's the one where the uh the two guys kill the two other members yeah, of the four members of the phoenix foundation are sent on a retreat yeah. to help them calm down and all four of them get murdered <laughs> my first thought for him is always the recurring character he played on the west wing as the president's therapist Danny Glover played Morgan. He doesn't get enough to do here, but he's yeah. Uh, he's definitely best known for being too old for this shit in four Lethal Weapon movies. So far, we'll find out soon if they're bothering with the fifth one now that Richard Donner has passed away. He's also in a movie I enjoyed called Gone Fishing with Joe Pesci, uh, which was written by Paul Mazursky's daughter and J.J. Abrams. <laughs> the, oh those God. are the co-writers of that film. Uh, I always go uh, pure luck with him and Martin Short. Oh my god, yeah, I totally forgot that he was the guy that, that goes with him on that part of the trip. That's, uh, that's a wonderful film. Sid Haig played Vince. That's one of the henchmen on, uh, on the commander's boat. He's Captain Spaulding in a couple Rob Zombie movies. We had him in Loose Shoes last season and Underground Aces so far this season. He's back for Galaxy of Terror later this year. He played a couple bad guys on the original MacGyver, but he's mostly appeared in a lot of schlock horror after the Spaulding character. Vincent Schiavelli was BJ, another of the henchmen. He was in the Gong Show movie and The Return last season and American Pop earlier this season. He's a Milos Foreman regular in titles like Cuckoo's Nest, People vs. Larry Flint, and Man on the Moon. He's in a couple MacGyvers, Ghost, and Tomorrow Never Dies. Ruth Buzzy played Consuelo. I don't remember him calling her Consuelo in the film. Yeah, I, I don't believe that she's ever given a name. Yeah. She has lots of voice acting credits, The Rescuers, Alvin and the Chipmunks, The New Scooby-Doo Mysteries. She's the voice of Mama Bear on The Berenstain Bears, Nose Marie on Pound Puppies, and Susie Kabluzi in 41 Sesame Streets. She was a regular in, like, the the comedian crowd. Like, I remember right. seeing a lot of the... Uh, Hollywood Squares. Or... Well, Hollywood Squares, but I was mostly thinking about the late night commercials for the uh, Dean Martin Celebrity Roast. Sure, sure. Yeah. Where she was, like, one of the usual regulars on yeah. that. Vito Scotti played Vittorio. He was Nazarene in The Godfather, and he's the voice of an Italian cat in The Aristocats. We've seen him so far as generic Italian characters in The Nude Bomb and Herbie Goes Bananas. I think he's the guy who's like, here to my chicken, when the, <laughs> when the car eats his chicken, because there's a child hiding in it that steals the chicken. Lou Jacoby played Landlord. We saw him earlier this season as the flower shop owner who asked Arthur what it was like to be rich. Feels great. A dumb question. Scott Beach played Harry. He's a George Lucas regular with appearances in THX 1138, American Graffiti, and then as a stormtrooper in Star Wars, which is why his IMDb photo is just the head of a stormtrooper in costume. Later, he's Mayor Gundy in Stand By Me and a judge in Mrs. Doubtfire. Jeff Hoyle played Clem. He played Scoop, the reporter in Popeye last season. Morgan Upton played Butts. We've seen him so far as Olderman's doctor in Cardiac Arrest for a minisode and one of the Battle of the Bands judges in Die Laughing. Tony Arkin played a puppeteer. He's the co-host with brother Anthony Arkin of the Arkin Brothers Talk About Movies podcast. Dabs Greer played Wally. He's best known as Mr. Jonas on Gunsmoke. More recently, he played the 108-year-old version of Tom Hanks' character in The Green Mile. 
He played Pa McCluskey, father of Gator McCluskey, in White Lightning, and bizarrely, he was replaced in the second film by the very next actor in the credits, John Steadman. <laughs> John Steadman played Snyder. He was the drunk in the welfare office in Cheech and Chong's next movie. He was Sam in Fade to Black, and before either of those, he was Fred in The Hills Have Eyes and Ned McCluskey, father of Gator McCluskey, in White Lightning's sequel, Gator. Uh, let me buy you a drink. I, I want to tell you my idea for a Gator sequel. Gator was a sequel. I know, and this will be the final chapter in the McCluskey trilogy. Arnold Johnson played another bum. He was Putney Swope in Putney Swope. We've seen him so far as Cull in Shaft. He was a bum in On the Nickel. He was a bank bum in Honky Tonk Freeway. He's also Carl's stepdad, Fletcher Thomas, on Family Matters, which we, we called out earlier in this episode as a font reference. Yeah. Stephen Hurst played Carman. I think that's the guy who gets yanked out of his car to fight in the road. We've seen him so far in Ordinary People and The Return. Jim Haney played Hot Dog Man Number 1. He was the Doc Master in The Fog last season. Max Grodenchik played Frankie. This is his first credit. He shows up as a clapper boy in Barton Fink and then Wilmer in The Rocketeer. He is probably best known for his 37 appearances as Rom in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. He also played Rumpelstiltskin in the 95 horror film Rumpelstiltskin. Gene Lauren played the mime. There's a mime in here for there a was? second. Yeah, yeah, it, there was. It sits down in front of them when they're hiding behind the bushes and pretends to give them weed, and I don't, I don't get it. He was previously credited as a symbol slash drummer in the competition last season and also has a creature technician credit on Return of the Jedi and a credit as Bear in Howard the Duck. That's probably Jean Lauren. Carl Arena played another mime. He was Capitano in the competition last season and a set decorator on Hot Dog the Movie in 83. Hot Dog, and there's hot dogs in this. Coincidence? Yeah. Daniel Forrest played a mime also. We saw him earlier this season for his only other credit as VW driver in An Eye for an Eye, the guy whose car got beat up by Professor Toru Tanaka. There were three mimes in here, and I didn't even notice one of them. There were three mimes. They all just wander over at the same time when they're sitting behind the bushes waiting for something to happen. I don't even know what they wanted to happen because then they just completely abort the whole plan. Matthew Arkin played Passerby. Come on. You can't get your other kid a better part than Passerby. Son of Alan, brother of Adam, and co-host with additional brother Matthew of the Arkin Brothers Talk About Movies podcast. I think I know exactly who this person is. The Passerby? When I think it's the person when they are rolling around trying to get the liquor bottle from when Alan oh and he just walks by in the yeah, background yeah because I thought it was I thought the guy was going to steal the briefcase oh interesting because this guy is approaching them and, and awkward awkwardly walking I do remember towards that. them he kind of looks Elliot Gouldish he's out of focus in the background yeah I was like oh man this guy's going to steal the case and then nothing happens I was like yeah. well why did you have a guy walk by passerby before this he was phil in an unmarried woman and after this he plays save the rhino man in death to smoochie and clive bernhardt on the get shorty tv series which is actually great i think we only watched the first season or, has there been more seasons uh, there has okay. uh, but i really enjoyed it and death to smoochie another vincent schiavelli right that's true rosie oh probably because danny devito directed didn't he or he's in it at least D danny devito directed death to smoochie yeah and they, and they were both in cuckoo's nest together yeah. Rosie Malik Yonan played Girl on Bus Uncredited. We've seen her so far as Girl at Game in Inside Moves and Beach Girl in Blood Beach. So this is her third girl credit. Good for you, Rosie Malik Yonan. Working up to that woman credit. Yeah. I think that's everything for Choo Choo and the Philly Flash. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron, Matt Smith. As a $5 patron of the show, Matt now has access to 31 full-size 70s reviews and 36 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Gallipoli which IMDb describes like so. Two Australian sprinters face the brutal realities of war when they are sent to fight in the Gallipoli campaign in Turkey during World War I. We leave you now with the trailer for Gallipoli.
place you never heard of comes a story you'll never forget. Gallipoli.